Philippians 2. Paul um, helps us to understand where he's going uh, just before Philippians 2 in verse 27 of the previous chapter when he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's similar to what he wrote to the Ephesian church where he urged us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We often speak maybe too much of our unworthiness. Could it be that those who are unworthy of his love, and we are, we're sinners, could it be that those who are unworthy of his love, who still struggle with sin, who feel the tension of living out our faith in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christian faith, as we heard from Nat recently, could it be that we can live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Paul defines for us what he means as living worthily. In the rest of that verse, he says that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, shoulder to shoulder, with each other, for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in any way by your opponents. Now, the Philippians were a church that were experiencing something of the opposition that Paul was experiencing, a persecution, real persecution. And so we may not sort of get that, you know, it's not really speaking to us. Anyone who lives a godly life will suffer. If we, know, if we have known or know nothing of suffering because of our faith, then we may need to reflect on how we are living this faith out in this world in our culture, in our day. We may need to. You've not only been called to believe in Christ, but also called to suffer for his sake. It's a double calling, actually. And no one, without suffering, will not share his glory. Sometimes we downplay some of the struggles and pain that we have borne. And we don't even recognise that actually we've been in fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. A part of what it means to live worthily, in a manner worthy of the gospel, is not to back away from the battlefront. Not to go quiet on confessing your faith in Christ. Standing firm in one's spirit without being threatened by the pressures that would seek to conform the church to what the world believes is one expression of living worthily of the gospel. And Paul, So Paul addresses the external threat. And if we don't know that the church 
is in a battle, <laughs> we're asleep. But then he goes on to deal with the dangers that arise from within the church, from within the community of believers. And that's what we come to in Philippians chapter 2. Let me just share a story. And I think I've shared this before, but it's worth sharing again. Shortly before the Russian invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968, a church just outside Prague experienced a terrible schism. Five elders fought it out, but none of them won. Consequently, the flock scattered in several directions. This story uh, touches my heart because I've been in a church where something very similar happened. Realising the devastating effect of their behaviour, the elders became ashamed of their actions, but were too proud to reach out to one another. After some time of praying things through, one of the elders took the initiative, went to the others and admitted his wrong. A spirit of contrition moved through the various factions in the church and eventually unity and fellowship were restored. Several weeks after this, the Russian tanks rolled into the country. Religious, cultural freedom ended abruptly as the new government cracked down hard. Soon all five elders were arrested. The authorities decided to make them a public example of the consequences of being too vocal about religion. A high-ranking officer of the secret police went uh, was to interrogate them. Confident that he could get them to incriminate each other, he separated them and began to try to undermine their trust in one another. To his amazement, it didn't work. Every time he tried to use half-truths and innuendos from the past to divide them, each would simply reply, I don't believe my brother would say that about me, but if he did, I forgive him. Eventually, the officer became so frustrated with this unusual response that he called all five of the men into his office and demanded to know why they loved each other so much. It wasn't long before he was on his knees asking God to fill him with the same love. Sometimes we need to discover the worst about ourselves and the worst about one another before we discover that love of Christ that covers a multitude of sins. Those elders, despite their deplorable failure, ended up living lives that were worthy of the gospel of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? So the other expression of living worthily is as a community of believers to let Christ bring us to the place of being one in heart and mind. The Philippians are to be united not only against a common opposition but united in their care for one another. And this unity will come through humility. Paul knows that the Philippians have had a great, have had a real experience of Christ. And so because of what they have already known, he urges them to full unity through humbly, as we heard, counting others more significant than themselves. You see, by reminding them of what they've already experienced, he was affirming and encouraging them. So we listen, we hear the word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, 
any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Is there, is there, and we want to hear it for ourselves, is there any encouragement in Christ? Have you experienced something of the encouragement that comes from believing the gospel? Um, Beautiful blessing in Thessalonians. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. I love that phrase, eternal encouragement. I could live on that for a long time. Is there any comfort from his love? Have you known something of the deep consolation of knowing that he loves you, that he died for you? He died for you because he loves you and he loves you now. Is there any participation in the Spirit? Have you experienced something of the power and presence of the Spirit in your life, in our life together? Is there any tender mercy and compassion? Have you known something of the tender mercy and compassion of God that has come to you in the gospel? Have you felt the compassion of Christ towards you in your great need? More than that, have you felt that compassion for others? Has it moved you to pray and to move out? to care. Now, I suspect that some of us may feel that this is where we should be, but not where we always are. I think that's how the Philippian believers felt, that they were not all that they knew they should be. Listen to the tone of the Apostles' words. This is, this is meant to encourage and affirm. But Paul, as an apostle, he was like a father. He, he knew how to exhort, encourage, by firstly affirming those he was writing to. He says, is there any... Is there any experience? Not are you always living in total encouragement in Christ, but is there any? Is there any participation in the Spirit? Have you known something of the touch of the Spirit of God in your life? Any comfort? Any compassion? Have you known moments? You know? Can you hear what he's saying? Is there any evidence of the action and presence of Christ? If there is then complete my joy, fill my cup to overflowing by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul actually had great joy over the Philippians. In chapter 1, he prayed with joy when he remembered them. But that joy was not total. It was not complete because... 
He was concerned that there were attitudes that were threatening undercurrents, threatening the unity of this young church. There was struggle in the church. There was self-promotion, self-preoccupation, a grasping for power. It wasn't a full church bust-up, but the weeds of pride and disunity were there in their hearts. And to that degree, they were missing out on the glorious oneness that Jesus prayed for, that he died for. Remember his prayer? My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe, that's us, that all of them may be one, Father, how one? (laughs) Just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you've sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they might be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you've sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. That was his prayer. And that's what Paul expect to see in every church he planted. So what would complete Paul's joy for these believers not to be jostling with each other, but to be like-minding, having the same love for God and for one another, being united in spirit and purpose? And I suppose, I suspect that would complete any pastor's joy, any elder's joy, anyone who has a burden for the church here at Corinth. Now this harmony could only be achieved if they rejected every kind of self-assertion, of self-promotion, instead, and instead, in humility, considered others more significant than themselves. Without humility, there can be no true oneness. Verse two, do sorry, verse three, do nothing, do absolutely nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. The need is to let Christ have his way amongst us instead of insisting that my way, my way or the highway, isn't it? We're not to be people who jostle for power and control. It's often been quoted, it's wonderful to how much a good a man or a woman may do in this world if he does not care, if she does not care, who gets the credit for it. I heard that a long time ago and I've never forgotten. I don't know how that would work in a business. It may not be the best way to run a business. It is the best way to serve one another in the body of Christ. Not to care who gets the credit. Isn't it ironic that the only one who had any reason to be rightly proud was humble? I'm talking of Christ. And that we who have every reason 
to be humbled by what we've done, by what we are. are proud. Pride always seeks to trip us up in one way or another. Taking the sideways look, we've heard that. Boasting in who we are, what we've accomplished. Seeking to sound wiser than others. Entertaining an inflated view of our contribution. Dominating the conversation. Trusting in our own abilities. Looking to the approval and praise of others rather than God's. Believing that if things were done my way, there would be far better outcomes. We can be too proud to admit when we're wrong, too proud to say sorry, too proud to serve those who we consider are below us. And then there's the spiritual pride that secretly imagines that we're further down the road than others. Or that the gifts that God has given us are due to our spiritual attainment. That's a clever ploy. We can even be proud that we're so humble. It's pride that stops us from seeing that none of those things are a temptation for us. The things that I've just said. We're beyond that. It's better to simply recognise how deadly pride is and how easily it mars our witness to the majesty of Christ and how quickly it sneaks in when we take our eyes off him. It's better to simply be aware and alert to the subtle working of pride in our hearts and of the need to chop it off at the knees. I don't know any other way really to put pride to death apart from recognising that God has put our proud flesh to death on that cross in Christ so that we might live by the power of another Sin, not even pride, shall have dominion over you. Consider yourself dead to sin. We have to do it every day, don't we? So it's not about how great we are or how great Coro is. It's about how great Christ is. Years ago, I was a manager of Westcare Day Centre and we had volunteers come in and one day this elderly man came in and he said, can I volunteer here? And I said, let's talk. And he told me a sad story. He'd been a pastor in another state in Australia. He got cancer. He was nursed by obviously a pretty young thing. And he took off with the nurse to another state, left his wife and uh, had an affair for some time. God turned him around, brought him back to his wife and they came to Adelaide, um, no ministry head. He was elderly. He was finishing up. Had finished up as a pastor. He said, "I just want to serve." And he came and he took a broom, and he swept the day centre many, many times. And every now and again, he'd sit down by someone with someone, a visitor in the day centre, homeless, an alcoholic, and he'd chat with them. I don't know how long he did that with us for six, twelve months. Then his cancer returned, and he died. He didn't want a position, he said. I just want to serve. He wasn't doing penance. He was just filled with an awareness of how much Christ had loved him and he wanted others to know that love. He didn't care about the fact that he'd been a pastor. 
He just wanted to serve. He was living worthily of the gospel of Christ. So Paul says, come on, let's look at the the attitude you should have. It'll be the attitude, the mindset, which is yours in Christ. It'll be the way he lived that must shape the way you live. And so he speaks to us of the unimaginable humility of Christ so that we might see clearly what he's talking about. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus spoke of the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. He refused to use for his own gain this glory that was his from the beginning. He did not see his equality with God as something he could use to grant himself immunity. He could have existed and appeared only as God. He could have clung to his status at all costs as one who rightfully shared the very nature of God and in doing so refused to come to our aid. Instead, he freely chose to take another form of existence that exposed himself to weakness and a struggle, to pain and to suffering. As one who was in the form of God, he reflected the very glory and majesty and greatness of God and it was this that he was willing to step down from for our sake. For you know, Paul says to the Corinthians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. So this is the core of the gospel that we believe that he did not regard being equal with God as something to use for his own advantage. He set aside his advantageous position for the sake of others. And so he emptied himself. That phrase has caused theologians all sorts of Problems, and we're not going to go too far down that line. I don't believe it meant he emptied himself of his deity. I believe it meant it's meant metaphorically. Just as just as um, the power of the cross is emptied of its power um, when we add something onto it, it's the same word. He made himself nothing, made himself of no reputation by taking the form of a slave. That's the word for servant, doulos. It was not that he exchanged the form of God for the form of a slave, this is F.F. Bruce, but that he manifested the form of God in the form of a slave. Unheard of. The Son of God, the eternal, pre-existent Son of God, who became flesh, walked among us incognito. Remember on the mountain, just on the mountain, he was transfigured. Before the three disciples, his face shone brighter than the noonday sun. They were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He did not relinquish anything of his majesty, but he chose to not reveal it. 
It remained hidden from the eyes of the crowds. He chose not to use the powers of his deity to shield him from the suffering and weakness that his incarnation would entail. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire. He became an ordinary man. He didn't shield himself from the feeling of our weaknesses. He was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. He was born in the likeness of men. He took on weak human nature that was vulnerable to temptation. He made himself nothing in order to make us into something. Paul doesn't try to explain the metaphysics of the incarnation. He didn't claim to know how God should do this, but he did claim to know why, the motive. And he believed that the Philippians could see it too, and I believe we can see it. And and if we, wherever the church has begun to question the reality, the historic reality of the incarnation, that God became man to serve us in this way, then they've lost something of the wonder that God himself has bowed down to bless us in and by his Son. In fact, he actually revealed the deepest thing about God at the point when he least looked like God, weak and powerless, hanging on the cross. He emptied himself, he poured himself out by becoming a slave, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We know the Roman Empire used that terrible crucifixion, that tool of to destroy their enemies. And the Jews considered a person suffering such a death as being under God's curse. And so this is the, the innocent, holy Son of God adored by the angels, the author of life, suffering the humiliation of this cruel death. But more than that, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. Laying his life down for us was his final act of obedience. See if there's any sorrow, like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted, in the day of his fierce anger. That was Jeremiah and Lamentations, but it was the, it's the truth of it. Couldn't be truer than for Christ on that cross. He became obedient to death on a cross. His whole life was one long obedience. The Father must learn that I love the Father, do all that he's commanded. He had to be about his Father's business. He was the son of his Father whom he loved. Our culture... I was listening to parliamentary debate and uh, they, they're being told off by the, what do they call the person who runs it? The speaker. And they were told off like little children. No wonder teachers have trouble controlling classrooms if our 
political leaders in Canberra act like. There is a rejection of authority and respect. And the idea of submission and obedience. Jesus showed us what true obedience is. Submission is not inferiority. Christ came to show us what his sonship, eternal sonship, looks like. And it wasn't inferiority. It was great, high dignity. And when we reject uh, the way God has made us to function in our families, in our marriages, in society, then we destroy ourselves. An obedient life is a life that puts others before our own. It's not pumped up with power. It's authority to serve. And that's how Christ served us. How will the love of God take shape in our lives? Will it take the form of a cross? A cross is where we bear with the hostility and hatred of others, with forgiveness and love in our hearts. A cross is where we suffer for others, even or especially when they don't even realise it. No one understood what he was doing there. And it may be that no one will understand why we keep on loving and serving. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Isn't that amazing? It's not just that he exalts his son, but he exalts his son as one of us. It's the name of Jesus the human name. He's taken humanity to that place of glory as God's vindication that this is what I mean. This is what you were created for. This is how your life should look. Like my son, as he lived out my glory, my oneness, my servanthood in your humanity. And now he lifts it up before us, exalts it to the highest place that we might declare he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's as though God's saying, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Have this attitude towards one another. My son and I, uh, my youngest son Ryan and I were doing some chiprock flushing. We were restoring a an old cottage with some help from Scott and my son-in-law Daniel. We thought we knew what we were doing when we were doing the flushing. We thought it didn't look too bad. But when Daniel came along and did some for us, then we looked at ours and we realised how far sure, how far we'd fallen short of how it should be done. But then we had a, a second go 
And I tell you, it doesn't look too bad now. We won't ask Scott because he's a bit of a perfectionist. It doesn't look too bad. We'd seen how it was meant to be done. Having seen the real deal, we took it on board and the result has been surprising. Not perfect, but closer to how it's meant to be done than when we thought we knew what we were doing. Now, Paul is putting it before the Philippian church and I've been putting it before you as the Lord has been putting it before me. Look at my son. Look at what he did. Look at how he did it. And then look at what you've been doing. And I could look at this past week and frustrating times and getting angry, struggling. But no, we can look again, can't we? There's grace, there's mercy in you every morning. And see clearly what we're to be. And then be it. Simply. It's not an impossible ideal. Why? Because God is at work in us. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out. You can only work out what God has worked in. Work out your own salvation. This is not about trying to work for salvation. It's about letting the the rich fruit of Christ and his salvation be outworked in your life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds gruesome or grim, (laughs) but no, it's not. Um, In the Psalms, it talks about rejoicing with fear and trembling. This is not guilty fear. This is knowing that God, our dear brothers and sisters up at Lobethal Church, just a couple of Sundays ago, were worshipping, and they, their worship, they suddenly, they were hearing singing that they'd never heard before. And it was so loud, and they were looking around. They couldn't work it out. And at the end of it, there was this huge clapping. And after the service, people were saying, did you hear that? Did you hear that? And they just really feel God just bless them with a worship and, and, and voices that were beyond their voices just to encourage them to know that God is at work amongst them, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, just as he worked his wonders in his son. So he wants to work in us, producing in us, forming in us the life and the mind of his son in all that we were about. I think that's all I'll share. Um, Let's pray. Let's just pray. Our gracious Father, What a wonderful thing, Father, that that we can confess your love for us. 
before we even need to confess our sin. Because your love does not change. And Father, you are at work in us. And we we wonder really how worthily our manner of life is. Is it worthy of this great gospel and calling? Help us to hear, Father, the encouragement of your spirit. To be honest, to be truthful about who and what we are and where we are. But, Father, not to miss the evidence of Christ among us and in us and through us. And do not let the devil discourage and dishearten, but to rejoice that Christ, who is Lord over all, is also the one who's called us to be one spirit with him and is present here now, speaking, stirring, sorting us out and giving us a fresh vision of his great humble love, which is, Father, your great glory and your heart. Father, you you don't firstly demand anything of us. You firstly give, and you've always done that. And in this great chapter, we've heard again how you gave your son and how he gave himself to our need. And so it's because you first loved us that we love and that that love can change the way we are so that we no longer live for ourselves, so that we no longer put ourselves above others, so that we serve one another with joy. Your very joy, Father, and your delight in us. So bless us, Father, because you're true to your word and your power has not been diminished by anything in this world or in our flesh. Christ is king and he is conquered. Bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.